Welcome to Gears Action Growth, shifting business culture one conversation at a time. My name is Dr. Josephine Palermo, and my superpower is creating business cultures that transform organizations team by team. Today, I'm joined by my co-host Ian, and we discuss what it means for work when society is shifting to non-binary models of gender identity, and can this make an impact on the systems we live and work in? I hope you enjoy this discussion. Today we wanted to talk about organisational culture and can organisations be non-binary because if we were to describe the average organisation in Australia, we'd describe them as masculine and white. So um, I thought it'd be really great for us to have a, a discussion about what this means um, within the current context where society is really shifting in terms of gender identity and the things they're really constructing new ways of thinking in a non-binary way. So what does it mean for organisations and, you know, how does it impact the systems we, we live and work in? So welcome, Ian. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. I've come over to Perth to visit uh, family. Uh, so we're having a post-lockdown get-together. Oh, that's really good. I think I think over the Easter break, a lot of people would have done that. It would have really caught up with family and it's we're starting to get out there so it's really wonderful it's, uh, you know what where I wanted to start with the conversation was really to sort of maybe um talk about you know why we're talking about this in the first place and so and, and Ian you had some thoughts about that in terms of you know what you're seeing in in terms of the shifts at, you know when we think about society at large around gender identity and gender pluralism yeah I guess I wanted to put this discussion into context. Um, I'm a white male, identifying as male, born with male bits. Um, but in the 80s, uh, I made a courageous decision to come out as gay, um, which at the time in Australia, especially in, dare I say, Perth, was a huge thing to do. Um, and then it's the, as the 80s, you know, the 80s exploded with HIV and AIDS and a whole lot of other things. So for me, it was a baptism of fire. Um, and in fact, I developed my skills as someone using organisational and community psychology by working in the HIV AIDS area with my own community or communities. But as the 80s moved into the 90s, the, there were the early, um, early stages of the queer movement and there were people identifying as queer rather than gay or lesbian. And still at that time you know to be transgender was still very marginal even with that was before the lgbti plus sort of uh alphabet people yes. as i heard david chappelle refer to us recently mm -hmm. um and that was way before the whole discussion of intersectionality came along to think about how that might intersect with notions of you know, racial diversity or ethnic diversity or gender diversity. Um, so it's it's a it's a hot, fetid soup in many ways, um, which isn't to say the soup isn't delicious and worth tasting, but it does require uh, one to be respectful and mindful and conscious of our own programming and how we look and the society we've been brought up in and the pressures of 
still living by and large in a heteronormative white male worlds. So it's a discussion I'm dying to have, um, but it's one that's also fraught. And, you know, that's why we wanted to have the discussion today, because I think that we we can lean into these kind of conversations and because it, we're all works in progress around this. So, and these are new concepts. And I think you were saying to me before, you know, you know, Gen Z probably won't even have this conversation because for them it's a non-issue. But for us, uh, you know, Gen Ys and Xs and baby boomers and whoever we are, it is something that perhaps we're feeling a bit, you know, a bit unsure about in terms of having a conversation and and opening up the dialogue around that. And this is what we're hoping to do for everybody listening is give you um, some tools to have that conversation, but also encourage you to have that conversation because Ian and I are not experts in this area. Uh, We have our own life story and we come to this with our life story. So, you know, Ian, you've got your, your story there. My story is about feeling marginalized pretty much all my life as an Italian woman, you know, being in a, a, a Italian family in a very uh, white Australia, um, particularly when I was growing up in the 70s, there was a lot of discrimination. Um, Italian was not cool like it kind of is now in Australia. And there was a lot of um, stereotypical expectations as well as um, some discrimination and um, just just some, you know, incredible um, tough times. But at the same time, there were also my cultural expectations uh, within my own culture that then challenged my understanding of what it means to not only be a woman but what it means to be feminine and masculine because there were definitely cultural overtones on those things and you know today we're going to kind of talk about gender uh, I know that race is another intersection here and I'm hoping that we can have a conversation about race um, you know in the future but today I wanted to focus on uh, what is it about gender gender pluralism and inclusion that we can bring into the way in which we think about leadership the way in which we think about our organizations as well so so you know so thank you, Ian, for being part of this conversation. I think we will be a little bit brave because we kind of need to be. Uh, I'm feeling a bit brave. And absolutely, I think we will get things wrong as we discuss these things. It, it, because again, we are not experts. We're working it out as we go. But having said that, I think our our experience, um, our life story, as well as some of the things that we've come across in terms of research and some of the the, you know, client settings we've worked in has perhaps given us an, a, an un, some understanding but definitely not not an expert understanding but that's okay and look uh, I guess we're, we're attempting here to um, to put into practice the core principles of adult learning which is you can only begin from where you're at you need to challenge the socially acquired worldview that we think is reality but in fact is just a whole bunch of stuff that we've learned Uh, and that's the value of adult learning is that by having robust respectful discussions we actually help each other unpack unpack the social nature of of what we think is reality 
Um, so that's what we're trying to do today with each other. And we encourage you to go out there and create those safe spaces in organisational settings to have those discussions as well. Exactly, exactly. Just be curious and ask questions. So one of the things we wanted to to do today is look at non-binary and what does it mean? So, but we, I think we need to go back to what does gender mean as an identity in order to do that. And um, I was really privileged enough to do a PhD a long time ago now, but the topic for my PhD was in gender psychology and particularly gender identity and how it impacts individuals and organisations and particularly for women at work. And so just in terms of definitions, we can probably start with a definition around the fact that gender identity is uh, expressions that are either stereotypically feminine or masculine. We can, sometimes, sometimes people refer to them as yin-yang. Uh, they come from a space where we can, we can attribute certain characteristics to different gender styles, but it doesn't necessarily link to biological sex. So in other words, men can be both feminine and masculine and women can be both feminine and masculine. And it's only through stereotypical expectations and early socialization and the, the programming of generations that you know we are both uh, a part of that we sometimes feel like gender styles or gender identities are fixed to biology. And, and I think this is what is decoupling right now. I think we're seeing particularly people decoupling that and saying, to themselves, actually, I can be feminine, even um, in my, you know, whether regardless of what my biological sex is, or I can be masculine, regardless of what my biological sex is. Um, and the other thing we should note is that is that gender identity or gender pluralism doesn't say anything about sexual orientation, because sexual orientation is separate again. Um, so you can be uh, one gender identity, you can be another biological sex and you can be another um, you can be all styles of sexual orientation and these things are fluid in life they don't necessarily fix in life as well so um, I hope that's that's okay for definition have you got any questions about that Ian after I've given you that definition um, I guess it was just a reflection that um, we are ultimately all, we're all biochemical soft machines and there are many people that are born with secondary characteristics of the other erstwhile gender. There are people that are born, um, yes. you know, they don't fit into, they're completely born non-binary non and, and historically um, those people are often subject to the scalpel by doctors and the parents, um, you know, when, the, when that baby is just born and decisions are made about that person's biological destiny you know when they don't even have a choice so you know it's i guess it's about the labeling process itself um i think non-binary is everywhere we just we just aren't able to see it really and um historically our western culture and other cultures haven't been able to accept that people are born that are or automatically um throw those binary definitions out of, you know, out of the window. That's true. So it's a very much an invisible, invisible thing. And we tell, you know, we tell ourselves stories about gender 
and that and then that feels like reality but it's it's definitely not a fixed position and uh, so yeah absolutely um so so even biological sex isn't a fixed position to your point Ian. yeah and uh, there's a great book called your inner fish which talks about how pretty much all invertebrate and vertebrate life on earth or uh, we all share the foundational building blocks uh, that other animals have. So there are fish that change gender based on the need to reproduce, based on the availability of males or females that are around. So, you know, males, are we're all born with the same template bits on our bodies. Uh, it just happens that the male genitalia is the flip side of the female. But I, I don't know, it's such a... For me, it's amazing because we as humans forget that uh, the biological world creates these hormonal triggers that produce gender as we understand it, and that other species are completely fluid in how they adapt based on the need of, of the situation. So there's so much we could learn with humility from the, the whole animal and insect and plant kingdom. Queen. I love that. You... I love that, Ian. <laughs> yeah. So we'll... We'll put that link in the show notes so so that you can um, have a look at that. I might have to have a read of that too. But, I, it, you know, it, it goes, I'm really curious. Why do you think we are, like, this is an issue or it's become more of a dialogue, I should say, rather than an issue. Why do you think it's more of a dialogue today? Where, how did we get here, do you think? In the Western world or in the world? Um... I think we can only talk about our experience in the Western world. Um, I would hope that it's an inevitable consequence of the increasing empowerment and agency of, of women or people who identify as women, the increasing impacts of all of that amazing work that went on from the eighties onwards through, and before then actually around queer identity, um, HIV education that I was part of in the mid eighties, um, I mean, I take great pride in seeing young people embrace their sexual diversity and show complete comfort in declaring their affection for another human being in public. I mean, that was the world that I dreamed of in the 80s when we were trying to help yes. same-sex attracted men uh, feel okay about taking good decisions about their sexual behavior that was actually health promoting and safe. Um, so it's amazing to be have been alive long enough to see that happen. And I guess uh, for me, the explosion of the discourse around non-binary identity is partly, you know, people who are transgender have also um, made courageous decisions to weigh into the conversation and say, well, it's time we were heard too. Um, Cause you know, there's a huge amount of ostracism, ostracism within the LGBTI community because we're just humans like everyone else. And there is racism and there is all sorts of horrible stuff along with the, the amazing stuff. I mean, I think people that identified as transgender were left out of those conversations. Yes, um, absolutely. And I think the time has come and those people have stood up and said it's time that you thought about our reality as well. Um, and it sort of intersects with, I think, women's emancipation and discussions about the glass ceiling, the fact that 
um, acts of horrible misogynistic violence are still occurring. Like all of these things are colliding, maybe at a time in late capitalism where, you know, the, let's face it, the writing's been on the wall for a long time that the white male worldview that's about blowing the world and digging it up and selling it off and then buying it back as junk, um, you know, that, that doesn't, that doesn't exist at all in a in a resource uh, compromised world with climate change and God knows what else going on. And let's face it, I, from my perspective, I think if 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 we were if we had non-binary decision making and governance, we would have avoided a lot of these ecological catastrophes that we're now dealing with. I, and you know, I, it feels like we're going, we've gone right out to the cosmos and back again. But I absolutely agree with you, Ian, because masculinity and femininity have, uh, as as identities, have certain characteristics. But within masculinity and within femininity, you've got different degrees of, um, I guess. Uh, positive and negative attributes so you can have very passive femininity which is you know very negative um, or not constructive to human flourishing and you can also have hyper masculinity which some people call toxic masculinity which is again not conducive to human flourishing and we see this at work we see this in terms of governance we see this in terms of decisions made at a kind of national level and we see these things playing out and often what we see is traditions that have been developed based on a certain world view and let, let me this might help as well when there was um, a lovely piece of work by David Bacan in in the 60s on masculinity and femininity and and really he taught his premise was you know human nature is is related to the way in which these forces balance out over our lifetime and he suggested that the evolutionary driver or the evolutionary challenge for masculinity is to go from just absolute hyper independence in other words it's just about me and I don't need to worry about anyone else and when you think about some of the problems that you were discussing in the world in organizations it's that hyper masculinity or that toxic masculinity which says I just can I need to make decisions that are right for me and I don't have to consider others so that absolute independence um, individualism if you like on the other extreme is a more positive femininity which actually says the driver for femininity is around connection or around uh, really nurturing others around me and not seeing myself as separate to others around me so we see this in the environmental movement which says you can't actually have um, you can't actually deplete resources in one area of the world and not think about the impact on other areas of the world or the ecosystem. This is a, an understanding that everything is linked. But the evolutionary driver for that kind of femininity is to gain more independence, to gain more um, individualism, if you like. And the driver for masculinity is to gain more connection. So David Bacan was talking about the kind of solution at the end of it is to come together in balance, is to have those forces and those the way of looking at the world as a balance. So it's not either or. It's actually about balancing that. And I think that maybe that's where we're getting to with gender pluralism and the dialogue right now is actually thinking about 
um, having conversations more about the balance and not because we're compromising. It's just because we there are certain things that are that strengths that we can take from, you know, being um, masculine, masculine, feminine and everything in between. So there's that pluralism has a strength to it that, that we need to solve very complex problems in the world. I think some of the assumptions that I'm having tested at the moment are watching wealthy cis white women um, at the forefront of attacks on transgender people in Australia as part of our current toxic election campaign. Transgender people are being used as a punching bag um, by the right in ways that I find disgusting. But having watched every series of The Handmaid's Tale and read the original book, you know, many years ago, it's kind of shocking to almost see the language creeping in about gender traitors or uh, gender gender extremists, I think. There was this uh, young blonde woman in Sydney using this language. And it's just funny to now, 30, 40 years later, watching... Um, these these women that are presenting themselves to the world like um, you know uh, gender traditional Barbie, um, but actually offering a worldview that I I've never heard even some of the more misogynistic men propagate. So I think some of my own assumptions about women being inherently more inclusive are being challenged. Um, but then I guess from a position of those women working and getting power within a, a, a misogynistic white male culture. There's a great uh, commentator in Australia called Ronnie Salt, and she refers to these women as crumb maidens. They are hovering around the table where the white male power brokers are breaking bread for each other, and they're waiting at the table for the crumbs to be tossed to them. And by doing that, they they throw everyone else under the bus who might get in their own way for, for their own power. So I believe her name is Anne Devis, D-E-V-E-S. She's running for the seat of Warringah in North, Northern Sydney, which was Tony Abbott's seat, um, who was Australia's prime minister that ran on a hyper-masculinist, white male chauvinist worldview. And she's come in the, the seat has been held by an independent for a while, but for some reason, the, the Liberal National Party, our conservative GOP, has decided to put her up as a candidate, but it's created enormous trauma for people that identify as transgender and for children, especially, who are... I mean, one of the great things about this non-binary world is that kids are exploring their gender identity in a way that... Uh, people of my generation certainly couldn't, or even Gen Gen Y, um, which I find amazing. Um, but yeah, for this person, this woman, uh, who's probably in her early 40s, she's got the Stepford um, family structure. She's blonde and pretty and, you know, she's ticking every box in terms of archetype cis white female. Um, to hear the stuff coming out of her mouth and the stuff that she's been tweeting uh, is very, for me, it's very transgressionary and very, it's very shocking. Um, 
because I'm used to white middle-aged bozos of my generation to do that sort of misogynistic sledging. So, you know, it's 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 straight out of the handmaid's tale basically. Right. And and you know, going back to your earlier point to Ian around what we see in leadership when women become you know, when women are placed into positions of leadership, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can or want to lead in a particularly less misogynist way. They are in a system that is very biased towards masculinity. And so when women lead, they are, firstly, they're probably promoted into leadership because they display those characteristics that are in line or aligned with that masculine view of leadership, which can be, um, less human-centered in a way than than other forms of leadership that that are more empathic and compassionate to people in the organization so you can end up with leaders who are women who are operating exactly like the males in their organization because as we said gender is not linked to sex so you and and it's no surprise that those women leaders are are going to be those kind of women that you know they don't support other women they are very individualistic they're very um, ruthless and they're very political in the way that they lead so that's not surprising and and you know in some ways we when we strip away sex from gender when we're just talking about gender we can think about organizations in terms of what the culture's like and what what are those what are those in other words those expressions that are that are acceptable and those expressions that are unacceptable in an organization and leadership is where one of those things comes up so for example my uh, journey as a senior leader in a corporate uh, organization i was often told that i was too empathic to staff that i needed to be perhaps less emotional that I also you know maybe I should have got the training that Margaret Thatcher got because um, you know I was often told that my tone was not wasn't quite right for the the leadership sort of position and again this is it feels like very old-fashioned advice but it, it's it's happening today we we are these forms of leadership are happening today I work with organizations many organizations currently and I do not see things changing organizations particularly in Australia but also elsewhere in the world but let's focus on Australia are predominantly um, operating a culture and a way of operating that is very biased towards masculinity absolutely without a doubt you know we're told to grow a set and uh, Betty White RIP she said you know we're told to grow a set of balls but we should all grow a vagina. They take a real pounding. And, um, you know, imagine if we had a view of masculinity and femininity that it wasn't about growing a set of balls. It was actually about becoming more more dem- demonstrably female or at least having the capability to withstand you know, some of the pressures that women withstand uh, and have that celebrated within an organisation. Absolutely, Ian. And you know what? In some ways, the hybrid model of working has accelerated some of these trends because the hybrid model of working is kind of the model that many women with caring responsibilities, many men who 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 have caring responsibilities have been 
really desiring but unable to you know bring to fruition in organizations that we're very focused on one model of where and when work gets done and so the hybrid model kind of brings that in it sort of talks about giving people more autonomy about how they manage work in their life because work is not the only thing happening you know in their life uh, whereas the the masculinist model or misogynistic model of operations if you like or organizational even organizational development and, and organizational workforce development assumes that when people are at work they are absolutely 150 percent at work they don't have other responsibilities that they have to take care of and if they do have other responsibilities it is not the place to manage those responsibilities it's almost like you know we expect people to divide themselves in that kind of organizational culture and again that's that's very much from my perspective in terms of studying gender and the psychology of gender that's very masculine it's it's about saying there's an individual and the individual is the only person that we need to consider when making decisions about workforce and workforce flexibility and workforce development rather than thinking about that individual as connected to a whole ecosystem of relationships and um, other life pursuits. You've actually hit the nail on the head with me. Something just clicked as you were saying this. Um, in the last couple of years, um, I think I mentioned this in my introduction to this podcast series, um, I stepped off a conveyor belt that I didn't even realise that I was on, which was that by a certain age I would have achieved certain things or at least had a an accepted level of responsibility that would be uh, acknowledged for me as a white man. And, um, you know, for a whole range of reasons that didn't come through, but I've actually developed this very interesting hybrid way of living that's partly to do with me in my mid to late 50s, but it's also been accelerated by COVID. And the, the, the dominant narrative that I think has come through in what you know it's the great resignation that's occurring with people dropping out of jobs that they find stultifying and uh, dehumanizing in some way people are saying i'm not my job and i've been coached by more than one woman in the last few couple of years to saying as i was sort of expressing my grief about what was happening for me she's they were saying ian you are not your job there are parts of you that your paid work or your professional identity will never cover. And this is your wonderful opportunity to explore those. And I, in some ways, it's almost a relief that COVID has come along and swept that dominant narrative away to some extent, because I, I've been I've been really encouraged to see a whole lot of people saying that, asking those questions to themselves, which are very non-binary questions. Um, that's that's the that's the aha moment that I just had while you were exactly talking. they are existential questions they're questions about who am I what am I here for where am I getting meaning every day from the things that I'm doing what is it for you know why why do I exist they're very existential questions it's got really nothing to do with whether you're a male or a female and and but but we do tend to kind of wrap uh, males and females around these sort of stereotypical expectations. And we're running out of time and I wanted to talk about...